Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Disability Connect Sharing My Disability Story podcast. Today we speak to Erin who has dyspraxia. She shares her unique and insightful story from school through to diagnosis and then to university and she's currently studying her PhD. Before we kick off I just wanted to say that disability is unique to everyone and I'll be talking to Erin today about her experience with dyspraxia but everyone experiences disability differently. So why don't we kick off? Hello and welcome to the podcast. Really good to see you again and thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, no worries. And today we're going to be talking about dyspraxia and, and thank you for offering to share your your um, personal journey with that. But firstly, could you just explain a bit around what dyspraxia is for listeners who may not be familiar with it? Yeah, sure. So dyspraxia, I think overall, is a very misunderstood or not understood at all condition. Um, it's kind of sometimes referred to as a development coordination disorder, uh, particularly when it's it's diagnosed in young children. Um, but on the whole, simply put, it is very much just struggling with everyday tasks, um, such as movement, organisation, planning, um, and communication and speech and language difficulties. Um, I'm happy to zoom into those more specifically and maybe share a bit about um, my own experience but with movement um, particularly again that's kind of where it's most recognized in young children um, it's often sometimes called clumsy child syndrome um, <laughs> definitely anecdotally not um, not medically or professionally um, so it's some common symptoms might be you know bumping into things or poor spatial mm-hmm. awareness um, sometimes people with dyspraxia will you know, joke about the fact that they'll find a bruise on their leg because they maybe hit their leg on the table um, or, or stub their toe um, purely because there is this kind of difficulty coordinating themselves and doing things that may be much more natural to other people. Um, for me, it comes up a lot in cycling, which is something that took me a long time to learn to do, um, probably as a result of my dyspraxia. Um, and when you see, you know, maybe cyclists kind of dash through in between two cars um I I could never do something like that I don't trust my spatial awareness I don't trust my balance um and I find those tasks just a bit more tricky than other people might in terms of organization and planning people with dyspraxia can struggle with things like attention memory time Mm -hmm. management um and it's important to recognize that these symptoms or, or experiences may overlap a lot with um other conditions such as ADHD or autism and and neuro I guess yeah sorry dyspraxia itself kind of falls under that neurodivergent umbrella um, and therefore has a lot of overlaps with these other conditions Um, so yeah organization time management attention um, and then finally speech and language um, which is again if you think about it as a coordination disorder it's not simply how we coordinate our bodies Um, it, it can be how we kind of organize our, our language and our speech and our thinking and, and present that forward. So I think I think it's really good to kind of highlight, yeah, the fact that these are, you know, really normal experiences. Um, and, and how do you differentiate? For me, um, I was one diagnosed in adulthood. And so even though mm-hmm. I was much um, slower than my siblings in terms of learning to ride a bike or learning to swim or, um, yeah, being able to do some kind of um, 
being able to kind of achieve these potential childhood goals um I think it was just assumed like I just took longer than everyone else no one ever thought mm. oh that in itself may be you know a symptom of a disability um friends I have who do have dyspraxia who were diagnosed in childhood um they had some quite clear difficulties in that many of them couldn't catch a ball until they're about 13. Um, so it, it really varies on how clear it is for, for some rather than others. Um, but I think those who are diagnosed in childhood, uh, there is a real persistence um, in struggling with some of these kind of physical elements of coordination. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I was diagnosed as an adult um, yeah. via education. So um, it was in my final year of university. And for me, I think, again, thinking of dyspraxia sitting under this umbrella, um, I had dyslexia as a reference term. So I've never had a formal diagnosis of dyslexia, but I knew what that was. That was kind of a, a common thing that people knew about. Um, and being able to recognize elements of my dyspraxia that overlapped with dyslexia kind of helped me understand uh, that there was something about the way I thought and understood information um, and processed knowledge that was somewhat different to other people. Um, so I, I tried to bring that up a few times in early education, again, saying I think I have dyslexia or using dyslexia as a reference point. Um, it was often dismissed on the basis of the fact that I was doing well academically, um, but I was really fortunate in that when I tried to communicate this at university level, I said to uh, the person who was kind of responsible for my academic progression, I said, I think I have dyslexia of writing. Um, and to which they responded, have you heard of dyspraxia? Um, and it was from then that I was able to kind of go forward with that assessment process. And how did that feel, I guess, getting that formal diagnosis after, I suppose, years of almost being dismissed that there was mm. a potential disability there? I think, um, and, and this may be the case for a lot of people, I think this kind of big sense of relief. Um, I don't think I was surprised and I think people often aren't surprised if they make it all the way to an assessment. Chances are they have, you know, a suspicion or an inkling um, that they have dyspraxia or, or a similar condition. Um, but a lot of things made sense and a lot more things than I anticipated. Um, I kind of went forward because I knew I really struggled with my writing and making my writing and my communication clear. Um, but I didn't think that much about my kind of physical ability and engagement with things like sports and how how much I dreaded that as a child um, or the fact that, you know, um, you know, sometimes in my speech, I get things mixed up. Um, I would say things like my froze are chosen if my mm -hmm. toes are frozen. Um, and, and there were just these kind of like common things that happened on a regular basis that I thought, again, were me kind of being clumsy with my sentence structure or clumsy with uh, my, my means of communication. Um, but I think what was, yeah, really helpful was I, I knew there was a reason for, for a lot of those difficulties, um, but I was also able to recognize that I had done really well um, to, to manage them and to manage them for that long. Um, so whilst getting adjustments, particularly within the education system was a big relief. Um, I think there was a sense of pride, uh, but perhaps even even grief, although it's quite a strong word, um, of, of knowing I had managed that well so far. I think the, the element of grief um, is almost a recognition of a, 
oh, I, I could, I had all this potential uh, that I perhaps didn't get to meet because I didn't have the support or understanding at mm-hmm. the time. So you mentioned you had some reasonable adjustments there. And um, what were those and, and how did they help you? Yeah, so in terms of adjustments, one thing I had was extra time for my uh, exams, which is common across, again, um, a a number of these things, such as dyspraxia, dyslexia, ADHD. And that was helpful for me just in terms of giving me the breathing space uh, to to look at my work or one, to slow down and not rush so much. thinking again about the coordination element, my writing uh, is is really intense based on how I hold a pen. um, And again, just coordination more generally, but in terms of reading over my work, kind of stepping back thinking, would this make sense to somebody else? Have I organized my thoughts in a relatively clear manner? So that was really helpful. Um, In terms of assistive technology, I was given speech to text software, text to speech software, uh, color overlays, Um, as well as mind mapping software. And all of those were really helpful, again, in just kind of supporting my brain to to process that information, um, to take it in in ways that worked a bit better for me. I think in engaging with the software, again, I became very aware of the accommodations I had already kind of put in place, particularly in secondary education. Um, I would often kind of create revision materials that worked for me that were much more auditory um so i used to record songs um to to remember um key information for my exams so the the technology kind of worked very well with the way my brain worked and it was really helpful um once i received it mm-hmm. and and it's amazing that you went to university and it was almost that one person that helped you with this diagnosis after, I suppose it sounds like quite a number of years of being pushed back or being told, no, you don't have a disability or no, you don't need any reasonable adjustments. Um, and I suppose that one person probably changed quite a lot from you, for you, would, would you say? Oh, definitely. I think, um, yeah, I, I think I, I didn't always know I had dyspraxia because I didn't know what dyspraxia was until um, it, it was presented to me by that person. But I always knew my brain worked a bit differently. Um, and I always tried to accommodate to that and, and work with that as best as I could. Um, but I didn't know why. Um, and I didn't know if it was just me kind of being a bit different or feeling a bit lost. So it was extremely validating to have that. I think it's just a shame, as you said, kind of how long it took. Um, Mm -hmm. So in throughout secondary education, there was always this acknowledgement from my teachers that, you know, you are uh, very intelligent, quote unquote, um, you do well by these kind of traditional academic standards. But, you know, there's always a kind of near miss. There's something about the way you write that makes it quite difficult to to deconstruct your argument and to understand what it is exactly you're trying to say. Um, And no one really kind of broke that down any further, um, particularly when you are getting kind of good enough grades to to progress down the route you want to. Um, Nothing's kind of assumed to to be needed to change. Um, And even at university, I think there was there's a bit of hesitancy in that when I explained to a friend that I had this diagnosis and I therefore got extra time. Uh, they did say, well, but you're already doing fine. You don't need extra time. And I think there's this assumption that um, adjustments need to be made uh, for, for those who aren't succeeding by 
you know, whatever societal expectation we have set. Um, but actually, if someone has the capacity to do better um, and is already putting a lot of effort into adjusting um, or compensating for, for the difficulties they face, I think they're entitled to, to that support anyway. Um, yeah, just, sorry, just to go back to your actual original question, I think, unfortunately, dyspraxia isn't very well understood or, or identified um, and I think that becomes increasingly difficult when somebody is performing well by our kind of conventional societal standards um, there's then the assumption that well they're doing fine so why would we adjust in any other way if they're meeting whatever we've set as our base standard. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a really really good point reasonable adjustments are around removing the disadvantage and the challenge mm -hmm not necessarily bringing everyone up to sort of the minimum standards of performance or productivity um, in that sense. So I think that's a really good point. And you mentioned that dyspraxia isn't really well known. Um, what would you say are the most um, common misconceptions about dyspraxia? Um, so I think, and again, this, this may overlap a lot with um, other conditions, but this kind of idea that you're, you're faking it or your, your struggles aren't valid which either comes from the fact that, well, I haven't heard of it, so it mustn't be real, <laughs> um, can, can be the attitude that some people put forward, or the, well, you're doing fine. Um, mm. and, and those two really interact with each other in that, you know, I've heard people say, you know, it's, it's not something I have heard about, but the adjustments put forward don't sound reasonable. Um, or it's, it's not something I know a lot about, but based on the two pages I've read very quickly, I think, you know, somebody shouldn't have this much support or should have this much support, um, which is very ironic, the kind of, I don't know about it, but I know better than you, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which which can come out. So I think I think a common misconception is kind of the, you, you don't have it, um, which I know is a response to a lot of people with, with disabilities that don't feel immediately visible. Mm -hmm. um, but also that if you have dyspraxia or if you do have um, a, a similar disability that you are just, you know, to, to truly have it, you have to be absolute chaos. You have to be smashing mm. plates and falling all over the place and unable to, to string a sentence together. And actually, you know, the, the thing about many of these conditions is they don't look the same for everyone. Mm. Um, and one, one person's experience may be you know, may allow them to do something that somebody else with the same condition can't, but that doesn't make either more or less valid. Mm -hmm. That's really true. And I think there's that constant challenge with invisible disabilities of mm. others and potentially in society as well, always questioning, well, actually, do you have a disability? You know, is that real? And I suppose I've got a very different experience of that using, using a wheelchair as my disability is very visible. People sort of know what adjustments I need in terms of physical access so it's a completely different challenge um, I'd say having an invisible disability like you do. And I think something that that often happens is the kind of backhanded compliment of like oh I would never know um, <laughs> or like a oh I, I would never be able to tell reading your work that you have dyspraxia and it's actually like that's not a compliment nor is it an insult like it's I have learned to be very neutral about this so I would like you to be the same like I don't need redemption <laughs> um, from something that I've learned to live with my whole life but I think sometimes people again don't understand it or have read a, a few things about it and then want to really 
make you feel better about the fact that you're living with this by showing how how invisible it actually is mm-hmm. yeah definitely and and just talk a bit more about perception of dyspraxia I mean have you mm. what's your experience been when you potentially told friends family colleagues um about the condition or the diagnosis yeah really really mixed um I would say I'm I'm very kind of well supported in in, in the spaces I'm in um and even people who didn't really understand it have have been great at kind of learning to understand it and and learning to understand it for me specifically. So kind of, you know, saying, well, what can I do for you or how does this impact you? Which I think is really important because again, dyspraxia has has so many different kind of uh, symptoms and experiences. So it will show up very differently for everyone. Um, In terms of home life, I think um, there, there was a bit of hesitancy from my family. I think that's just because our relationship with, with disability itself is very different so um, my brother has autism and he's non-verbal um, and that meant we were part of loads of family groups for people you know with the like children's with children with disabilities um, and I think in my family's mind disability then looked like those experiences um, for for those who maybe needed like full-time caring support and because I didn't meet that standard it was kind of like a mm, but <laughs> are you really disabled or like, oh, but you're, you're really clever. So how can these two coexist? Um, I think my family's perception has changed purely because, you know, I, I'm around all the time um, and, and they can see what I struggle with and they can see um, how I react to certain tasks or challenges. Um, and they have been very understanding, but I, I think there's still that initial, but you're so smart <laughs> as if the two um, are kind of challenging each other all the time. Um, in the workplace, I think it's quite different um, purely because it, it's just quite different to an educational institution where, you know, a lot of these things are picked up and you're producing so much written work that it's expected that we would see these things in the workplace where it's more about project management or organisation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's less of an understanding and there's less of an expectation um, that that people might come in with these difficulties or not necessarily less of an expectation but again it's it's something that's quite invisible it's not very well understood organizations are so much usually so much smaller than Mm -hmm. you know educational institutions and therefore there's still that element of a surprise um and i think for probably a lot of disabled people more generally but definitely people with dyspraxia there's a lot of you having to bring forward um your own adjustments and you explaining this is what i'd like this is what i'd need which you know w- would still be the case with how uh dispersed some of the the dispersed and varied some of the symptoms of dyspraxia are yeah thank you and i think that's a really good point about the size of organizations as well and often you expect mm-hmm. big organizations such as universities which have lots of experience with diversity and a huge amount of students to have a lot more knowledge than those smaller organisations, which may be just building their knowledge of different disabilities. So I think that's a really good point. And you mentioned before a bit about the reasonable adjustments you've sort of had in place um, during education. But could you share some of your maybe like tools or strategies that's helped you sort of manage dyspraxia in the past? Yeah, so, so I think half of the job is really understanding yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and knowing what, what works for you and what doesn't work for you. For me personally, I know that I have a tendency to get, you know, what, what is arguably quite a simple thing mixed up 
Um, and that can be, you know, I've often booked train tickets the wrong way around, or I might put somebody uh, whose title is Mr. Under Miss. Um, and it's it's just really kind of, um, I don't want to say simple because I, I struggle with them, so they're clearly not simple, but, you know, quite, quite small kind of errors and mistakes. Um, and for that reason, I always kind of, as much as I can, ask for a second pair of eyes. Um, I try to do those tasks without distractions. Um, and I think kind of having the support of other people, even if it might feel a bit embarrassing, just says, OK, it's not just on me. Somebody else has had a look. And, you know, if, if we both make the mistake, then that's fine. I feel a bit less bad. Um, but I know that I have taken the time to, to really check um, everything I need to. Um, thinking a bit about things like memory and uh, processing information, again, uh, text to speech is really helpful just for, you know, when, when my eyes are tired, when my brain is tired, or writing things down, um, just so I'm really kind of taking, taking that load uh, off my brain and not relying on myself to, to manage everything internally. I think the biggest coping strategy that I'm working on every day is essentially patience. Um, I know that I may be more likely than others to make these mistakes um, and that's okay. I can't always change that. Yes, I can try to free myself of distractions. I can try to get people to, to double check my work, but I'm still human. <laughs> dyspraxia or no dyspraxia, mistakes happen um, and I have to be prepared for that and just acknowledge when it does happen, try to move forward try to stay calm and not kind of uh, panic or, or be too harsh on myself. Um, so I think there's loads you can do to try to manage things and cope with things, but I think compassion and patience is mm -hmm. necessary because mistakes will always be made. Mm -hmm. No, thank you. And just talking about, I suppose, success stories or positive experiences um, that you could share about your life with dyspraxia, do any come to mind? Yeah, so I think um, it sounds very silly, but even being under the radar for so long, I think, <laughs> demonstrates kind of how many fantastic coping strategies I had. Um, and I think as someone who is still in education, so I'm now doing a PhD, um, but I have spent time in the working world. I think I've, as kind of nerdy as it sounds, I've been able to make education really fun um, because I can't learn as well as others by simply reading texts and processing it in that way. Um, I've been able to develop really fun strategies such as you know, mind maps or creating stories to remember key bits of information for exams or essays, or again, turning things into music to kind of help my brain process that and remember it. Um, so whilst, yeah, whilst it, it may sound a bit nerdy, I think my educational experience, while there have been difficulties, um, I've really gone out of my way to to make it fun <laughs> um, and to make it enjoyable. Um, in terms of other success stories, I think one thing I'd really want to emphasize is the idea of it not being too late. Um, going back to the kind of physical elements of dyspraxia, I really didn't engage in sports. Um, I was extremely nervous about them. And I think particularly, again, thinking of schools, sports, at least where I grew up, as a kind of social currency if you're good at football or netball or basketball or athletics, you're, you know, you're quite popular, um, you're, you're admired. Um, and because I was terrible at those, because I didn't like confrontation, because I didn't like kind of physical aggression, I steered clear of them um, and just hated PE. I tried to skip as much as possible, but actually later on in life, I've been able to find sports I enjoy. I've been able to 
you know, try out physical activities, even though I know my balance isn't as good as other people or my coordination um, might be a bit of a struggle. Um, I think, yeah, just trying to remind yourself that it's not a case of you weren't good at this as a child and therefore you can never enjoy it in the future. But saying with that patience and compassion, I can try new skills. I don't have to be good at them. Uh, they have loads of positive benefits for me if I continue them um, and feeling like you do have that second chance. Mm. I think that's a really, really good point there. It's uh, it's never too late to try something again yeah. or learn more about yourself or your disability. Um, and I'm, I'm certainly um, finding that lots of people are getting diagnosed later on in life now as they're coming to terms with actually what does this mean could this be this disability could it be this and that sort of can help people to understand themselves a bit better and then yeah. start thinking actually what what do I need or what adjustments do I need that means I can do something I couldn't do in the past so I, I really like that point I think, I think that's really true and you mentioned you're currently doing your PhD what, what's that on? Yeah, um, so I am doing a PhD in kind of education and sociology. Um, so I am looking at how we measure and understand social class and therefore social mobility in relation to higher education. Um, so that was very much kind of influenced by my own educational journey. Um, mm -hmm. I grew up in a working class mixed race family in South London um, and yeah, was state educated um, and then went on to study at the University of Cambridge. Um, which again, I think is sometimes used as a, oh, but you can't, can't have a learning difficulty or, you know, you're so clever. Um, and actually it was only being put in that very academically intense space where it became even more clear that mm. there was something about my writing and my ability to communicate um, that I was, yeah, very much struggling with. Mm -hmm. And just think about the impacts of, I guess dyspraxia linking with other protected characteristics such as social yeah. social mobility like you mentioned there and um, what impacts did you sort of notice? Yeah so I think um, one there was that kind of piece around under understanding um, from my family and a kind of like oh but you know you're you're so clever and you're so clever considering your your upbringing and your educational background surely you can't have a disability um, that being said, I think when I went to university, because there was so much about me that kind of stuck out already um, and maybe um, wasn't typical for, for a space like Cambridge or a university like Cambridge, I think my kind of academic struggles and my struggles with my writing could be explained away by my social background. Um, so if, if, my academic profile on application said I went to the best school in the country um, and had all these other kind of ways of being brought up or a particular family background, I think my writing style would be questioned much more immediately as like, a, oh, people like you don't write like this, so what's going on? Mm. Um, but I, I do believe, and no, no one said this, and you know, it's, it's my own opinion um, and interpretation, but I, I think that my academic struggles being sitting alongside a kind of um, social profile that was atypical of Cambridge probably meant a lot of my struggles were read away or dismissed as, you know, this is just what it's like when you come from that type of school or that type of background. Um, of course, someone like them is going to struggle um, in this way. So I think that's probably one of the reasons it did take so long 
Um, in addition to that, I did, you know, when I was quite young, as I said, I really did understand my brain and I really did try to, to think about how I thought. <laughs> um, I remember coming home from school and saying to my mom, I, I think I have dyslexia and being quite upset about it because I was just struggling. Um, and we went to see the head of SEN at, at my school um, who asked me to read some texts, which I read quite well. Um, she then said, you know, you can't have dyslexia. Um, you know, your reading is fine. If you want to go and pay this many hundred pounds for a diagnosis, then go ahead, but you don't have dyslexia. And that financial cost was just like, okay, no, we don't, we don't need to do that. We, we're clearly doing fine. Um, no one has hundreds of pounds to spend on something that doesn't, you know, that still has quite a big question mark on it anyway. Um, but yeah, I, I think that is quite a, quite a big overlap. I think also there is sadly in our society still this um, perception about class and intelligence. Mm. Um, and I think there is, yeah, an assumed connection between disability and intelligence. And I think um, that, that can turn into a bit of a chaotic, um, yeah, chaotic mess of, okay, if, if I'm not doing well academically or if I'm struggling, um, is it this, is it this? Um, am I just not very clever? Um, which, you know, no one should have to think, but I think you can get yourself uh, in, into that kind of brain space when you're not doing so well. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I mean, I've certainly had my own experiences of that perception, that disability linked to maybe not as intelligent as others. I, I always remember when I was at, at school, one of my teachers sort of asked me, oh, do you need any help? Which is sort of write your homework mm -hmm. in your homework diary. And I mean, as a wheelchair user, I can't walk, but I could write completely fine. <laughs> and there was just that perception there. And I don't mm -hmm. really know where that came from sort of thing, but that always sticks in my head. Um, so it's really interesting, that, uh, that relationship there. And just talking a bit more about, so sort of research and understanding of dyspraxia, has that, has that evolved in recent years? Yeah, so I think the, the thing about dyspraxia itself is it does, in my perception or in my experience, seem to be way more handled by educational institutions and medical institutions. Um, nobody's cured from dyspraxia. No one really um, needs it kind of treated in any medical context. I think the, the only person who's medically known about it for me has been my physiotherapist, because um, again, I, I had bruises <laughs> um, and some quite poor balance. Um, so there, there isn't that much research around it. And if there is, it's often educational or, you know, more social. Uh, how are people dyspraxia perceiving themselves, their identity and, you know, themselves in relation to others? Um, before this podcast episode, I did have a, a quick kind of Google to see what what research did exist. Um, and actually, most research done and most research recent research done was very much about looking at dyspraxia in relation to uh, other experiences such as ADHD or autism, or even trying to distinguish the two more clearly. Um, so I think when um, doing diagnoses for people with ADHD, many of the questions relate to dyspraxia uh, and there's kind of research to see how the two can be drawn even more distinctly apart from each other. I think that definitely shows there's a bit more of a need for dyspraxia to kind of <laughs> Uh, form its own identity and kind of, you know, be, be recognised as its its own um, unique condition. Um, and, and I think there are loads of people with dyspraxia who, who are quite keen for that to, to happen. That would lead to more understanding um, and more knowledge about it. 
that being said, um, I, I'm quite neutral to this. I think that's just, again, I have experienced symptoms that, you know, are more related to dyslexia or are more related to ADHD. Um, and I do just think of neurodivergence as an umbrella term and accept that with my diagnosis of dyspraxia, there are ways in which I might fall into those other categories, maybe not completely, if anyone can, you know, complete it. Um, but I do recognize, yeah, there, there are so many kind of experiences that will overlap with those different conditions. Um, that being said, I think there is still a need for more to be known um, about dyspraxia and dyspraxia on its own. Um, it's kind of the, I would perceive it as one of the less popular um, kind of identity of experiences or conditions in the, in the neurodivergent family. <laughs> and potentially some of our listeners might be thinking, they might have dyspraxia or they might be going through the diagnosis process themselves and what advice would you give them? Yeah I, th I think on that note I would say be open to different or multiple diagnoses. Um, I've definitely known people to go in to an assessment um, thinking they have one thing maybe dyspraxia maybe something else and coming out with something different or you know two to three uh, different conditions. So I would say be open to multiple or different diagnoses, but also be flexible. Um, it's obviously the, the diagnosis itself offers a real kind of power in understanding yourself and, and making sense of things. But I would argue that it's most important that you understand your specific symptoms um, and, and therefore your potential coping mechanisms. Um, I think I've come to terms with the fact that dyspraxia is what is on paper, uh, but sometimes one day the support I need might be very geared towards dyslexia one another day the support I need might be geared very much towards ADHD um, and for that reason I don't worry too much about the title itself um, I mm. worry not worry but I, I manage more uh, by by focusing in on my unique experience um, and and the understanding and skills and coping mechanisms that can be gained from that um, I just I am aware that dyspraxia is not very well understood and, and those who have it may identify quite broadly with um, the experiences of, of people with uh, various uh, neurodivergencies. So I'd say for that reason, go in with an open mind because uh, you may come out with that one diagnosis or a few, um, but all of them are just there to kind of guide you in understanding yourself better. Yeah, thank you. I think that's really good advice, almost being led by your own disability, your own condition, yeah. not necessarily what you read online. Um, in terms of what the definition is of, of these conditions, definitely. And, and the last question, so I ask this at the end of every single podcast that I do, what advice would you give your 10-year-old self? Yeah, great question. Um, I think I would advise myself to continue being creative. Um, I think that's, whether that is um, part of the way my brain with dyspraxia is wired or is, is a coping mechanism to just uh, compensate for the, the things I struggle with. I think creativity has been a real strength and, and definitely, yeah, supported so much of my learning. So I'd really just want to push myself to keep doing that, um, to where possible engage with, with sports or physical activity and just see it as my right to do, not something I have to be good at, <laughs> um, just something that I'm allowed to do and I'm allowed to be bad at. Um, so yeah, just encouraging myself to be creative and sporty, because um, I think those are things that dyspraxia has either perhaps denied me or enhanced. Um, and, you know, everyone has a right to do those if, if those are things they're interested in. Mm -hmm. 
That's really good advice. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for your time today and for sharing no your story about dyspraxia. It's been really, really interesting. And I'm sure lots of our listeners have found it incredibly useful and definitely increased their understanding of dyspraxia as well. So thank you. Amazing. Thank you. Um, if it's OK, actually, one thing I would add is just that the Dyspraxia Foundation have really good um, resources and starting points for anyone looking to learn more. Thank you so much for listening to the latest episode of our Sharing My Disability Story podcast. If you're interested in learning more about disability and inclusion, please check out our website, disabilityconnect.org.uk, or you can email us at info at disabilityconnect.org.uk. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you at the next podcast.